0: grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get
1: started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Editor-at-Large of Recode. You may know me as someone who learned history, but I'm still doomed to repeat it. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Nicole Hannah-Jones, a domestic correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. She's an investigative journalist who has written about schools, segregation, housing discrimination, and policing, but she's probably best known for creating the amazing 1619 Project, an ongoing series at the New York Times about the legacy of slavery in America. It's an especially good time to reflect on history because the coronavirus is killing Black and Latino Americans at higher rates than others, and both of those populations have endured discrimination from the medical procession for centuries. Nicole, welcome to Rico Decode. Thank you for having me on. So, right now you're reporting on coronavirus. Talk a little bit about how you look at the landscape. Uh, there's so many ways to go with this, but I'd love sort of your uh, your overview of what is happening in this country with the relation to coronavirus.
2: Well, I think that uh, this is a very interesting time because of course, the pandemic is really magnifying and putting a spotlight on so many of the inequalities we've seen in our country and so many of the ways that we have really dismantled the social safety net, we've dismantled or public institutions like public hospitals. And of course it is uh, putting a glaring spotlight on racial inequality and the ways that um, from everything from who was able to work from home and social distance to who comes in contact in service sector jobs with the public to who is most likely to have the conditions that uh, make COVID 19 so deadly are all very racialized and we're seeing um, the effects of that as well.
1: So let's talk about each of those individuals. Let's talk immediately about work at home. Let's start with work at home and that's probably the easiest one to cover. This, you're you're absolutely right. The idea of who can work at home and the experience people are having are very different depending on the person. And then I'd love to move to sort of frontline workers and the jobs um, that put different people at risk including delivery, grocery, and other areas. Um, So let's first talk about the idea of work at home, because, again, it seems like there's two pandemics happening, um, depending on who you are.
2: Yeah, for sure. So we know that uh, when it comes specifically to black Americans, only about one out of five black Americans has a job where they can work from home. Black people, as well as Latinos, are uh, the groups who have the highest rates of jobs in the service sector. So these are jobs that, of course, are you know driving the MTA or, or Delivering the mail or working as a cashier working in a meat packing plant all of these jobs that require you to really uh, Deal with a lot of people in the public so, you know at the New York Times we started social distancing work from home measures about the first week of March or so when you think about how many Uh, Other workers were not able to do that. That meant that for weeks and even now, people are having to be exposed. Um, Even at a place like the New York Times, the number of people from the public, if I'm not out reporting whom I interact with, is very small. But other people who are still going to work um, were in these kind of service sector roles, we're having to be interacting constantly with large numbers of people from the public. You look at transportation. uh, Black Americans are the least likely of all racial groups to have their own car, to own their own vehicle, and the most likely to take public transit. So who are the people who were having to once again, interact with large numbers of the public just to go to work or to mm-hmm. go to the grocery store or to go to the doctor. So in all of these areas,
1: we're seeing why black people would be most exposed to this virus. So talk about those jobs. First of all, it's the, the nature of the job where you have to show up. One is essential workers. And one of the things, as, as much as there's been a focus on doctors and nurses, there's also all kinds of other workers that are in the environment um, that have to show up to work. So there's the essential workers, first of all. Whether they're hospital aides or home health aides or other or other jobs in that area, sure. And I I really love
2: this word we're using, essential, yeah. um, because these were people who were always essential. Yes, when, yeah, fair Their point. Whenever point. I give a talk somewhere, I, I always try to thank people who clean the rooms, who set the rooms up, who prepare the food, all the people who make everything nice. Uh, And clean and hospitable for all the rest of us to go about our daily lives. Um, But these were not people who we considered essential. These were the same people who, you know, before the pandemic, folks were arguing didn't deserve a livable wage, that Mm -hmm. this work was not that important and and essential jobs required that you go to college. Um, And now we see that our society cannot function without these workers. And so we are calling the janitor. We are calling uh, the person who delivers our food. We are calling the the cashier at the grocery store who allows the rest of us to uh, sit in our homes or the delivery person who ensures that I don't have to go out and risk my health to shop. Now we're calling them essential, but they've always been essential. And I think a big difference, I'm sorry if I may, is when we think about uh, nurses, now not home health workers, but nurses or doctors whom we call essential, they're well paid to be essential. But all these other people who we're calling essential are people who we have been allowing to get by on poverty level wages, even though we need them as much as we need other people whom we have considered essential long before this.
1: So why do you imagine that? that people don't consider them that why why when this when it shifts to the calling them essential or making them using it is there a better way to talk about it or not and then when we return at inevitably everybody will does that make them non essential again from from the perspective of people in society
2: I love that we're calling them essential because I've always felt them to be essential. I I come from a family where nearly everyone uh, would fit into that category in some way. So I think they've always been essential. We have not treated them that way in terms of respect and uh, the dignity we allot them, nor in terms of the pay. So what I hope is that this will help us understand once this is all over, that those people have always been essential and we should treat them so, which means we should pay them a livable wage. Uh, We should allow them to have access to health care. We should allow them uh, the ability to live in in housing where they could actually afford uh, to pay their rent every month. I think those those things that we think are so important now, uh, a base income, should be important once this is all over.
1: So when you think about that idea of of payment, how do you right now assess how the employers of these people have been treating these workers?
2: I don't want to make a a sweeping generalization, but uh, what I will say is we are seeing... Uh, workers going on strike, workers protesting, workers saying uh, our employers are not treating us as essential but sacrificial. Uh, I myself have a family member uh, who was working until very recently in the Tyson plant in Waterloo, mm-hmm. Iowa, that is the uh, seeing a, a steep rise in cases. He stopped working there because he was afraid. Um, that he was gonna lose his life. He's older, he's, he's my uncle. Um, so when I think about that, um, I don't think employers largely have been treating these workers as essential. We aren't seeing workers by and large getting hazard pay. We aren't seeing them get the type of equipment that they need um, in order to stay safe. And I think when we look across the country and see all of these stories, um, the rising number of deaths amongst the people whom we, who have been able to social distance, have all relied upon so that we can live our lives, I think we're going to have a deep sense of shame for what what we have allowed.
1: So talk about the Tyson plant. People who don't know what this is, a a meat processing plant, um, where they've had a hotspot, and this happened in several different places, one in South Dakota and some other places. These are workers that continue to go to work to keep the meat supply going. Um, and then there's been a rise in cases because there hasn't been adequate protections. Talk about what needs to be done at say plants like that for your uncle and others to be safe at work, or is it impossible?
2: I think uh, there's certainly things that can be done. I mean, one, the plant uh, in my hometown is in Iowa. The other big plant we've all been hearing about is Smithfield in South Mm -hmm. Dakota. Both of these are states in which the governors have refused to issue stay at home orders. Now, Because these workers are considered essential, we know that these workers would still be working even at a stay-at-home order. But what a stay-at-home order does then, of course, is limits the amount of people they will come in contact with outside of their work that uh, could possibly infect them. So the fact that these are happening in places where governors won't issue stay-at-home orders, a lot of these places were not, they are not being allowed to social distance within the processing plant. Uh, for people who've never been inside a processing plant, um, you find workers are working on a line, uh, sometimes with only three feet uh, as their workspace and they're right next to another person. They're very cold. So people's noses are kind of constantly running uh, because you're, you're in a refrigerated unit, which of course leads people to wipe their nose, um, it's just, it's it's not a great environment. And workers were being told they had to, you know, bring their own mask or bring their own uh, safety equipment and there weren't plastic shields being put up between workstations. And what some of the reporting is also showing is that as plants are being shut down in one location, some of these companies are then moving workers from locations where plants have been shut down because of COVID virus outbreaks uh, to other plants, which of course are then leading to more infections yeah, at those plants. Right, because
1: they're carrying the Exactly.
2: Infections. So you have folks who, and, and again, these these jobs are very, very hard jobs on their best day. Um, they are not the type of work environment that any of us who have choices would want to work in. Uh, they don't pay great, but they pay you know a decent wage. Uh, but these are people who have to go to work. And if there is no shutdown, they cannot get unemployment. Um, and so they have to work. And, and people's lives are being endangered so we can have bacon on our
1: tables. So when you think about what needs to be provided them, since they're not doing it in the first place, even at the height of these things and moving them, do you imagine what, what can happen in order to bring even just the things you were talking about—the small amount of things, masks that they get from the company, dividers, uh, plastic dividers, more so wider spaced workers—is that possible at all, or do you see you see that changing?
2: So let me be clear—I'm not—I'm not an expert on uh, meatpacking plants or businesses, so right. Um, you take this with what, whatever uh, caveats that I just provided, but just from my my reading of it and also my understanding, because I, I have lots of family members who have worked in uh, these meat processing plants, is you are going to have to uh, slow down production. We aren't going to be able to have as much meat uh, coming out of those plants. There's just no mm-hmm. way that you can provide the type of distancing that is necessary uh, and be able to pack these people into these Plants on these 24-hour shifts, so I think that there there would have to be a slowdown, and then there would have to be an investment of funds into retrofitting these floors these, where the workers are working with the plastic dividers, with more spacing, and providing the proper equipment. I mean, you can't wash your hands all day when you're working in a meat packing right. plant. Like you're on the line, you're on the line. Of, you know, sometimes for hours at a time. So all of us, I think, really need to. Think about what is most important. I was watching the news this morning and and they said about 25 to 30 percent of all the meat that is coming out of these plants is actually going overseas. So Mm -hmm. we don't have to have the high production rates in order to feed Americans. You do have to have those high production rates in order to make the profits that uh, is driving so much of this.
1: A hundred percent. Well, speaking of profits, you were talking about hazard pay uh, and the idea. Now, some of these um, Amazons raised uh, some given, I guess, $2 more an hour in some places. Talk about what hazard pay means, or is it just having this living wage in the first place and then adding on top of it?
2: Yeah, so I can tell you, um, as a, a former hourly worker, I worked hourly work for most of my adult life. And an extra dollar an hour doesn't really do anything. Let's just be very real. Um, I I remember when I got a raise from making $10 an hour to $11 an hour, it might have helped me pay my cable bill. So Mm. I I think we should be very realistic about how insulting um, giving someone an extra dollar or $2 is when we're talking about hazard pay. That's not going to allow me uh, to get life insurance. That's not going to allow me to um, save enough money so that if I get sick off of COVID, I can pay my my bills for a month or two these workers need to be making a livable wage and they need to be making a livable wage once this is all over and it should be lost on none of us right amazon this is the richest man in the world in history in history history. um it is possible To pay workers decently uh, and it is possible to give workers the type of benefits they need and still be the richest man in the world.
1: Well, let's address that in this workers part. Um, One of the things that's been uh, prevalent in the technology age is this idea of gig workers, whether it's Uber drivers uh, or uh, Lyft workers or uh, people at the Amazon uh, facilities. And the, the, the arguments about the benefits have gone on and on. And it's this question of redefining what an employee is and what they're trying to do is sort of uh, you know, you have the situation of lords and serfs, is the only way I can think of it, is that there's these artificially low prices in order to grow uh, on the backs of people who are doing the working. Talk a little bit about the gig economy and what has to change. You know, from your reporting, there's so many more people's, people in this gig economy, and the numbers are growing exponentially, essentially, as these services come online, whether they're delivery or cars or whatever.
2: Well, I think what's important here is, is again, to think about how we're defining this. None of this uh, is accidental. So we, we've seen really the, the crushing of labor unions all across the country. We've seen the privatization of services that were uh, once public services. And all of this has meant that there are fewer and fewer uh, real jobs with benefits for um, employees. And even at private companies, you've seen a growth in the contract uh, worker uh, who is not actually an employee with full employee benefits. And what we've been told, you know, at this point is that uh, you should be lucky to have a job. Uh, We have kind of uh, deified this hustler mentality, the idea that if you really want to be successful, it's a sign of your ambition that you're working three jobs. Mm -hmm. That is not true. And this is a narrative that, of course, benefits um, executives and powerful people and really hurts uh, low-income people and uh, people who are working, maybe they're not low income, but that's because they're working two or three jobs. And of course, uh, the gig economy has always been racialized. I think what we've seen is uh, the black experience has been nationalized in some ways in that black people have long had to work in this gig economy, um, long had to work in jobs where they had no stability, where they were contract workers, where they're having to piece together several jobs uh, to make a living. And uh, we are all seeing kind of the suppression of wages, because of that, and uh, it's a problem. So when you look at, a, a, for instance, a company like Uber, are these drivers independent contractors or do they work for a company? I think we need to get to the point where we're really evaluating what that means.
1: So when you're thinking about the question of the gig economy, they do sell it like you have your freedom, you get to do what you want. That's their big, those are among their many. This is so great to be able to choose, pick and choose when and where you want to work. Um, what has to be added on from your perspective as you report across the country? What, you know, there's AB5 in California. There's other attempts to to make these into quasi-employees, I guess, not full employees. But what has to change? Is the whole conception of what an employee is uh, and that benefits move with them? Or what are you seeing that's promising?
2: Well, so again, my, my beat is not labor. And right. um, I don't like to go too far on something that I haven't done a lot of reporting on myself. I really think that what we have because of this pandemic is a chance to do... Uh, a, a both a mental and actual reset in this country. Uh, this provides an opportunity for us to question uh, so much of what has become part of, of the societal norm. Um, was uh, declining union membership a good thing? Was the ability you know, not to have the right to bargain and negotiate with your employer a new thing, um, a good thing? When we think about the, the quote unquote gig worker, the idea that this was freedom, You know, I'm a journalist. I don't know really any freelance reporters who would prefer to be freelance over working for an organization Mm -hmm. that could pay them with benefits. So I'm not sure kind of legally or in terms of legislation, what can be done uh, to change that. But I do think that uh, we as workers need to really think about how we have allowed um, our own value and worth to be eroded.
1: Absolutely. I think one of the things that's important to think about is how this has accelerated trends that were already happening before coronavirus. We're here with Nicole Hannah-Jones, the creator of the 1619 Project at the New York Times. We're going to take a quick break now. When we get back, we're going to talk about medical issues and also um, education right now and how that is being impacted by coronavirus, uh, particularly when it comes to the Black and Latino American communities.
3: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact.
1: We're here with Nicole Hannah Jones. She's a reporter for the New York Times Magazine. She's an investigative journalist who's written about schools, segregation, housing discrimination, and policing. And she's probably best known for creating the 1619 Project, an ongoing series at the New York Times about the legacy of slavery in America. Let's talk about the the uh, situation with education and the the what 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 it's shown here. One of the things is not everybody can. Have computers to do online schools, and th- these th- this kind of issue of of people being needed to needing to be at school and how it's impacting various communities.
2: yes, you know this has been um, really interesting for me, someone who has covered education for a long time uh, to watch so i've I've written a lot about educational inequality, uh school segregation. And one thing that I get all the time is, well, we just need to get technology. Yeah. If these kids just had access to technology. And my response has long been, um, you know, wealthy white parents are not saying just give my kids a better computer. They want a teacher for their mm-hmm. kids. They want a rigorous curriculum and a professional educator who is going to guide their child through the curriculum, they don't just want their kid to have the best technology because their kids already have that. And I think what we're seeing now is clearly that sitting kids at computers all day and saying, teach yourself math based on this module is not an effective way of teaching our children, period. It never has been, uh, but we're seeing that even more. But of course, much more important than that right now is um, the technology gap is also really being exposed for what it is. We have large, large uh, numbers of uh, Black and Latino kids and low-income white children who have no access to internet. They don't have internet devices outside of maybe a parent's cell phone at their homes. And now they're being asked to go to school online. Uh, We're also seeing that the same unequal educational system that our kids were having to go through anyway is being exacerbated in that they are you know how good your online instruction is depends a lot on how good your school was uh before the coronavirus so we have everywhere from you know i've been talking to parents in louisiana where there has been no school and no instruction for an entire month school just stopped Um, just stopped just just, completely stopped. just stopped uh to other schools where kids have gotten, you know, a packet of homework that they do every week, but are not getting any instruction. And then you hear about others who are getting live instruction from teachers for several hours a day. So we're seeing, you know, such gaping inequalities that always existed, except it's far worse now, because even if you didn't have a great teacher in your school, you were getting some instruction at your school. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing uh, some kids who are getting none at all.
1: So what is that? How does that happen? Because most of these schools, no one's going to anticipate necessarily where everybody has to stay home. Um, But talk about the school in Louisiana. Like, what what are the kids doing? They're just not going to school. No school whatsoever. Right. So what
2: happened is, um, so in Louisiana, when the governor shut down the schools, uh, Mm -hmm. the governor said that school districts may offer uh, virtual or distance learning, but it didn't require the school districts to offer distance learning. So some districts have offered and some have not. And of course, it is almost uniformly the poorest and uh, most predominantly black districts where you're seeing, uh, in some cases, absolutely no instruction. And, and I mean, literally where school stopped, and there's not been a single contact from the school with the kids since, uh, to some where it's sporadic. I talked to uh, the parent of a high school student there where two of the teachers are giving work and none of the other teachers are giving work. So it's very sporadic. And then you have in a place like, for instance, New York, where you know, there are hundreds of thousands of kids who just don't have an internet device at home. So. Right. The district has been trying to get devices to those kids, but this is a circumstance all over the country, which means uh, the same way that hospitals are having a hard time getting PPE, um, Mm -hmm. school districts are having a hard time being able to purchase these devices if they even have the money because they're competing against every other school district in the country. And then you have the case uh, where very, very poor school districts, they simply don't have the funds to buy devices for kids who don't have them.
1: And also the teachers, the expertise of teachers using them, um, which you're seeing, I think, countrywide, but the idea that you, that you have plans in place to do so. Exactly.
2: I mean, the thing is, uh, clearly no one could foresee um, something happening where you would have to shut down every single school within a matter of weeks. And I, I do think we have to give some grace and understanding that this is not an easy mm-hmm. thing to accomplish. But the truth also is that... These disparities have already existed and some teachers are heroically
1: rising to the occasion and others are not. And they're also home with their own children possibly and have their own issues uh, managing that. Um, Absolutely. When you're when you're in a situation that, what happens then? What are what are educators thinking is gonna be the impact if kids don't a lost year? Or what is the or or people not going back to school or, you know, you already have those issues uh, in poor communities, wherever they are. What is the thinking is going to happen here in this last few months or possibly longer?
2: Yeah, I think we have no idea. Um, this is unprecedented. So what do you do? Are you, Are we going to pass kids up to the next grade? Where in New York City, where we start the school year so much later, our school year extends to the end of June in normal times, which means you will have children who will have missed almost an entire semester of school. What happens with those kids? We don't know. Are we going to try to start school in the summer in some districts? We don't know. Some people are calling to hold kids back. Is that the right thing to do when you're going to have some such varying um, outcomes for kids where some kids will have been logging on with great instruction, uh, great online curriculum every day, and other kids will have gotten virtually nothing within the same school district. Is it fair then to the kids who haven't gotten that much to get held back? This is a a massive experiment, and I have no idea. Um, I think no one really knows what is going to be the right answer. How do we resolve these issues? Once we are able to go back to school, one thing that I hope will come out of it well, two things. I hope a deep understanding of educators and teachers as a professional class, because, you know, we have all heard this idea that anyone can teach uh, this undervaluing of educators. And now uh, as so many parents as myself are frustratedly trying to explain math to our kids and, and realizing that. The fact that i know how to do a fraction doesn't mean i can teach you how to do a fraction i hope that we that we that we see how important this profession actually is and also how perverse funding our schools by local tax dollars is because what this means is highly funded districts who are able through local tax dollars to raise a lot of money they're able to get their kids technology they're able to get their kids what they need and low Income districts that are struggling for funding are not. And you're seeing school districts even funding, uh, struggling to provide meals for kids. School districts where 70 or 80% of children are on free and reduced lunch, and they're being forced to come up with the money to try to help feed these kids who are getting fed at school twice uh, a day. So those type of inequalities that we have allowed, where if, I, if I'm if i a wealthy person, I can move into a school district that gets a lot of local funds, and if I'm not, then my kids have to struggle. That was always a perverse system, and we're seeing right now even how much more perverse it is. The kids who are behind are going to be so much further behind than they already were. And the kids that were advanced are just going to continue to be so.
1: So, when, what is the, from your reporting, when they're going to get kids back in school? There have been a lot of discussions of moving toward that first, although that seems to put teachers at risk in a way that seems unprecedented to do that to them. I mean, do you mean kids in New York? In general, putting kids back into school quicker around the country. It's not just New York. I know there's a fight between the mayor and the governor over this, but it looks like those schools are not going to be going into place um, until the fall, right? Is that correct? Yeah,
2: I think in most parts of the country we're seeing um, that those Initial school closure orders are being extended to the end of the school year I know that Louisiana has now said schools won't open for the rest of the year. Uh, That's the case in Georgia Uh, That's likely to happen in New York as well Um, I I think school districts most of them in the country are getting out typically in the middle of May anyway, so Mm -hmm wouldn't really make sense to try to put kids back in for a couple of weeks considering how dangerous it still is so yeah the thought is that our kids will have been out of school uh, from March until whenever school starts back in the fall and that's a long time we that's a long time. already know that particularly for low income kids those summer months can be a, a time where they they lose um significant amount of of their learning during those periods anyway. And now we're going to more than double that period. And the idea of summer school,
1: how is that looked upon by school districts? Just too soon?
2: I think different school districts are considering many different avenues. I know a place like New York, where uh, from the people I've been talking to, we have a very strong teachers union and there has not been a great deal of support for extending uh, the school year into the summer. So I think we'll we'll see. This is an unprecedented time that is going to call for unprecedented action. And again, it, it is a time for us, where I think where we can rethink some of the, the acceptable norms We have not had a need to have our kids off for the summer for a very long time. There's really no need to have that. Uh, There are some school districts that have been operating year-round schools uh, for a couple of decades now. And so Mm -hmm. I I do think this is a time for us to rethink the way that we have been offering uh, education and whether it continues to make sense, which of course I would argue it doesn't, that kids Mm -hmm. are off for the summer anyway.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think kids should be always in school from eight in the morning until eight at night. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, um, we're here with Nicole Hannah-Jones. When we get back, we're going to talk about the medical issues uh, that are being faced because a disproportionate number of uh, especially poor uh, Black and Latino Americans are suffering higher numbers. And if you see the statistics, they're quite disturbing. Uh, When we get back, we're here with Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's the creator of the 1619 Project at The New York Times. We're also going to get an update on that. We're here with Nicole Hannah-Jones, the domestic correspondent for The New York Times. She's also an investigative journalist who's written about schools, segregation, housing, discrimination, and policing. And she's best known for creating the 1619 Project, although maybe she doesn't think that's what she's best known for. Anyway, um, the coronavirus is killing Black and Latino Americans at much higher rates than others. Uh, Nicole, talk a little bit about this. This is this is some these statistics. And just recently, the Surgeon General who had pointed this out, although someone... His messaging was somewhat off on how he was presenting that, has sort of been seemingly sidelined by the Trump administration, um, where he hasn't appeared in public um, as much as he was before. Talk a little bit about that and and why you think that is and what needs to be done.
2: Right. So uh, it took a while before we started getting the racial data on uh, coronavirus infections, hospitalization Mm -hmm. rates and uh fatalities but when we got them when we started getting them uh the disparities were so stark they're Uh, stark they're disturbing in every place that we are getting the data black people in particular are um, not just overrepresented but in some places numerically the minority but um but still being the majority of deaths from coronavirus. And Mm -hmm. uh, Latinos uh, also, in many places, are being disproportionately represented in hospitalizations, et cetera. Uh, So we are seeing these really stark disparities. And uh, I think one thing that is so different about the United States is before the coronavirus really came here, we were led to believe that only older people really died from the coronavirus, that the types of comorbidities, of preexisting conditions that made it so fatal were the types of conditions that you tended to see in the elderly. And so uh, younger people didn't really have to worry about dying. Uh, we have seen that change once the coronavirus got to the United States. And that is because black Americans in particular are suffering from those comorbidities at much younger ages. The effects is called weathering. And we see, you know, a ton of data and a ton of research on this, that the health effects of racism, of living in high stress environments, of living in poverty means that black people start to see these um, health effects at a much younger age than you typically see. And so Black Americans are dying at a much higher rate. I think there's also, as this story goes on, we're going to see these other factors that impact Black people in healthcare um, being reported out. So we know that Black Americans face discrimination throughout the healthcare system, treated much more harshly throughout the system. Doctors don't tend to uh, believe their when Black people present having certain problems and having pain, they don't tend to be believed. And we're already seeing stories of Black Americans who showed up at the hospital with COVID ID symptoms and were turned away and ended up dying. So I fear that not only are we seeing that Black people are more exposed because of the types of work that Black people do because of their reliance on public transit, and that black people are already sicker in general, which makes them much more susceptible to the virus. But I fear we're also going to see that black people have not been uh, getting equal access to treatment, and that that's also leading to these high death rates.
1: Talk about what what the, the messaging that's coming from people like the Surgeon General about you know this is sort of your fault. And That, <laughs> that was what I read out of it. It was weird when I heard it. Um, Absolutely. You know, if, you didn't, if you didn't smoke so much, I was like, lots of people smoke. This is not. This is a function of the whole system uh, not working for different groups of people, especially poor people.
2: Yes, so we saw, uh, and, and I tweeted about this, you started to see the messaging around the virus change once we started to get the racial data out. So before we saw the racial data, it was, you know, this is no one's fault. This is the great equalizer. You know, we we have to help Americans because Americans are dying and they did nothing to deserve this. And then as we started to see the racial data come out, the message starts to change to messages of personal responsibility. Uh, Black people need to take better care of themselves. If you took better care of yourselves, you wouldn't be dying. And of course, kind of epitomized by the Surgeon General, he himself who is very fit, but who also suffers from comorbidities, he has asthma, hypertension, and is pre-diabetic, which no one could argue uh, come from him not taking care of himself. Uh, kind of stands up and lectures black people about uh, practicing social distancing and taking responsibility, and that rhetoric is very dangerous. and And I think uh, what's concerning to me is these protests that we're seeing now across the country. These very small. Mm. Limited protests to open up the government uh, come right after we start to see who are the people who are mainly dying from the coronavirus. So uh, many of us both wanted this data because how do you serve the communities who need it the most? How do you get the resources to the communities Mm. who are suffering the most without the data? But we also understood that once that data came out, uh, it was going to change the narrative around this disease in ways that could be harmful.
1: Right, and so this is that it's not us, so we don't have to worry about it. It's not us who are going to be doing the dying, in other words, and it's their fault.
2: That's right. And so, why should I personally have to sacrifice for these people who just, as always, uh, aren't doing what they're supposed to do?
1: Right. I thought I found the social distancing part really interesting because some people have the ability to get masks. They have the ability to uh, to not be on buses and or where they have to be, which is kind of an interesting. You know dichotomy. It's sort of your. It, what was interesting is that you you aren't able to take care of yourself. It's the weird messaging that I found, which is is untrue. It's that you're in a systemic situation where you can't. Um, you don't have choices that other people have.
2: That's right. And also, there's no evidence that Black people have practiced social distancing any less than any other group. Right. right? Oh, I get We, that, we saw these images of kids at spring break on the beaches. We've seen these images of uh, kind of white evangelicals saying, I'm going to go to church anyway. Um, so. We don't even, we know that Black people are in a position where it is just in general more difficult to socially distance, but also that we don't know that there's some race effect where, uh, I mean, I can tell you the language that I was seeing online was, Black people don't listen to authority, and Mm -hmm. so they're just choosing like they always do not to listen to authority. And yet you have, um, you know, the governor of Florida saying, well, we need entertainment, so." we're gonna open up the WWE or people, we want people to be able to go to beaches. And that's not seen as uh, not taking personal responsibility, but the behaviors of black people are. And that's the, you know, the racialized way that we see each other in this country and people who we consider to be innocent and those who we think to have contributed uh, to their own fate. And the thing is any one of us at any time, you know, any time any of us ever has a cupcake We've made a bad decision, right? Yeah.
1: Like we and know. we made a good decision. That Nicole, that is that's right. That is a good decision.
2: That is a decision we've made that is not in the best interest of yeah. our health. And we all right. do that every day. But that does not mean that somehow I am deserving of dying from this uh, novel disease that no one has ever had before. And we need to think about what makes our uh, sympathies change, and the way that even if we don't think of ourselves as racist just seeing a different face uh, as the victims, how does that impact the sympathies that we have for people?
1: So when you're thinking about the availability of medical, uh, there's been story after story in the New York Times, including some of yours about the inavailability of, of the right testing, the right hospitalization, the right ability to get to, to a bed even. Talk a little bit about that. What has to change in that regard? Because again, you write the messaging at the beginning was everybody's in it together. We're gonna serve everyone equally when in fact, that's not the case.
2: Right. So we know, one, it was very clear uh, from the beginning that no matter what your race was, just the ability to get tested was based on your income. You know, how how were entire NBA teams able to get tested, but regular citizens were not. Um, So we've never treated access to health care equally in this country for anyone, Um, but particularly Black people when we look at uh, Black, and and I would say also rural Americans, your ability to get access to hospitals, uh, the ratio of doctors per uh, residence in neighborhoods. Uh, We know of all groups, Black people have the least access to level one trauma centers, even though Black people are the sickest uh, of all Americans. So even uh, whether or not when you get sick, you're able to go in your neighborhood or close to your neighborhood to a place that can see you, that can get you in, that's not uh, overstaffed and overrun. Uh, It's often a very racialized experience and it certainly is an experience uh, that is classed as well.
1: So uh, I want to finish up talking about uh, your project, the 1619 Project, because there really is a good time to reflect on the history uh, of this, is this persistent, uh, not just income inequality, but inequality of medical care, of uh, education, of access, uh, even now to testing. Where are you with the project right now? What 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 are you working on?
2: So we are uh, expanding the 1619 Project into a series of books. And so right now, uh, I'm working on a a new essay that I'll be writing for the book, as well as assigning stories across different areas of American life. And I think what's so important, the way that the 1619 Project connects to this conversation, it does so in a couple of ways. We tend to think that uh, the primary driver of inequality in this country is class. But what we know to be true is that black people experience these effects no matter their income and no matter their wealth. So when you look at likelihood to have asthma, hypertension, diabetes, even when you control for income and education, black people still experience these at the highest rates. Black women have the highest rates of maternal death and infant mortality and it actually increases uh, the more educated the gap increases the more educated and the more income that black people have so mm-hmm. this is not merely a class problem um, the other thing though is there's a piece in the 1619 project about why we're the only country in the industrialized world without universal health care
1: mm-hmm.
2: and that is because uh, and the polling has been clear on this for decades that if white Americans think that black people will benefit from a social program, their support for that social program goes down. Mm-hmm. You look at where we did not expand Medicaid in this country, and it was in the black belt states. It was in the states that had the largest percentage of black people, which meant that those governors were willing to deny health care to millions of poor white people, understanding that uh, by not expanding, there were going to be a disproportionate number of Black Americans who didn't have access to healthcare, but there were also gonna be millions of white Americans. So we all suffer for our inability to get over this original sin and to purge ourselves of this anti-Black racism that's within our structures and institutions. It's not just hurting Black Americans. Uh, It's disproportionately hurting us, but we all suffer for that. And the fact that even now, you know, we, we look at the Democratic debate and the discussions around uh, universal health care and mm-hmm. this idea that my my right and privilege should be to hold on to my health care insurance through my employer. Well, now that millions and millions of Americans are out of work, we see how tenuous Right. Uh, the ability to go to the doctor is when it's connected to your job. And then when millions of us lose our job, we have no option. This is a system we should not sustain, and uh, racism is one of the reasons we sustain it.
1: So to take the 1619 Project and make it relevant for today's issues is what you're attempting to do with the book or is it is is it going to continue to sort of go through historical or com- combine them with uh, relevant issues today.
2: Yeah, so I mean the whole concept of the 1619 project was to take modern yes. America and and show how these institutions, these practices, these policies we have today can be traced back to slavery. And so the the book project will continue to do that. Um, It will continue to look at the ways that the legacy of slavery is not dead. It is with us uh, and it is impacting all of us, uh, not just black Americans.
1: And in terms of leadership, in terms of leadership, you know, you had uh, this uh, President Obama being president. We now have we had a lot of uh, people of color in the Democratic race. Of course, it's (laughs) as usual. (laughs) it's now a white guy, an old white guy, uh, running. But uh, Vice President Biden has promised that he will um, add a, a woman uh, vice president to his slate. Um, a lot of the people being considered are women of color. How important do you think that is? And do you imagine that happening? I mean, you're not a predictor. You don't know, neither am I, but do you, do you think that the chances are good and what the impact will be? Or
2: Yeah, so I... I- I try to never make political predictions because <laughs> I hate looking foolish. Um, but I will speak to the importance. We know that black women are the base of a Democratic Party. There's no yes. doubt about that. Uh, black women vote for Democrats at the highest rate of any group. And the only group second to black women are black men. So when you consider that this is an election where you need to not just uh, maintain the support of your base, but have enthusiasm that your base will come out. To me, a smart decision is to make your choice reflective of the most loyal people in your party, and that is black women. So I think it would be a difficult thing to explain with all of the super qualified black women Uh, candidates out there, I think it would be hard to explain why you did not make that choice.
1: Yeah, I do too. I'm picking Barbara Lee, but okay, <laughs> Just, that's my choice. It's not going to happen, but I, I like it anyway. Um, and lastly, I want to, when you think about all these things, I mean, it's a pretty grim picture. What do you that you were you were talking about the idea, and I'd love you to finish up talking about this um, of reconsidering what we're doing, either whether it's Medicare for all or giving everyone access to health care or reconsidering essential these essential workers as sacrificial workers, which I think is a brilliant way to put it. What do you think is the the thing that will come out of this? If you had to look, because a lot of times we do this, we should reflect on this, and then it never happens. Do you do you see one or two things really being the legacy of this particular crisis? Hmm.
2: Um, you know, I, I, you probably don't know this about me, but I'm I'm probably one of the most pessimistic <laughs> people <laughs> uh, out there when it comes to structural change. I, I, I do think that if we study history. The times where we have seen tremendous structural change has been times like this. It has taken Mm -hmm. something that fundamentally tears at something in our society for us to kind of get the will uh, to do something different. So I don't know what we'll do, but I'll tell you what I hope we will do. Um, We have uh, gotten to this point in this country where uh, our rugged idea of rugged individualism has gone amok. We don't value our public institutions. We don't value a social safety net. There's this idea uh, that the, the biggest motivator should be profit. And mm-hmm. um, what I think is a, a real disdain for our, our fellow Americans that um, we don't think we should help out um, other people because they're not deserving. And mm-hmm. I hope what will come from this is an understanding that our public institutions matter that we should want our fellow Americans to make a decent wage uh, for any respectable job, and all jobs are respectable, um, that we should want our fellow Americans to be able to go to the doctor if they're sick and not just kind of greedily guard our own uh, healthcare plan So I hope that we will uh, see a resurgence of universal programs designed to uplift and ensure a base standard of living for all of our, uh, and I would say Americans, I'm I'm not gonna speak specifically to citizenship status. If you live Mm -hmm. in this country, in a wealthy country such as this, you should be able to have a certain standard of living and we should have more faith and our other fellow Americans that people are not just trying to get over, but that people are really struggling and, and we should make life a little bit easier.
1: All right, I'm gonna end on that, Nicole, because that is positive, even if you're a, a pessimist. <laughs> I'm a pessimist too. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey E S J. Nicole, where can people find you online? You have a wonderful Twitter uh, presence for sure. Where can they find all the different things you do?
2: Sure. So uh, my Twitter handle is at Jones and I have a website, NicoleHannahJones.com. And of course, you can find all of my work at The New York Times.
1: And it's the, the 1619 Project has a special, I think, dedicated area yeah. on the Times, correct, which you can find. And it's really, there's so much more there uh, th- that you've added so many, so much amazing stuff. It's really uh, an astonishing project, um, something I, I I hope you do even more with. Um, if you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe and special thanks to Squadcast.fm. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.